Hey there, and welcome to Living Through It, a podcast for interesting times. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, a recovering lawyer, world-renowned leadership expert, and lifelong progressive activist and organizer. Reminder that if you want to listen to this podcast ad-free, you can head on over to patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. You can get access to our entire back catalog ad-free there, and also we have some special bonuses for our most favored listeners. Thanks so much for being here. And now here's this week's episode. Hey, hey, welcome back. And what an election it was. This week, we're so excited to feature on the Living Through It podcast, my friend Santiago Meyer, who is the founder of Voters of Tomorrow. Voters of Tomorrow managed to mobilize Gen Z all over the country for this election. And I think you're going to get a lot out of Santiago's takeaways and predictions for the future as we look, woo, it feels like it's a little fast, toward the 2024 election cycle. Thanks for being here. Okay, and we're back with Santiago Meyer. I am so excited for this. Santiago is the founder of Voters of Tomorrow. Uh, In the days leading up to the election, he was on Twitter nonstop shouting about how we were all underestimating the youth vote by a lot. So uh, we are here to do our election roundup because uh, lo and behold, what he said was right. Welcome to Living Through It. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'm excited you're here, too. Okay, so first of all, you and I have known each other for a while now, like I think going on about three years. I know your story, but I think... Our listeners should know your story because it's a good one. So tell us how you came to start Voters of Tomorrow. Yeah, so I, I'm originally from Mexico City. I In Mexico City, I used to do a lot of Mall United Nations, and I was very into the United Nations. And then I moved to the United States in the middle of 2017, so in the middle of the Trump administration. And obviously, the Trump administration and specifically some of his policies like the Muslim ban had a lot of impacts in the way that other countries viewed the United States, interacted with the United States, and really the way the role that it played in the world. So me being an international relations nerd really want to talk about it because it was something that I found really interesting and really important. And in um, I, I was a sophomore in high school at this point, and I kept trying to talk about it with people in my classes and talk about it with people that I, with my friends in high school. And I realized that many people my age either didn't really have the tools to talk about these issues or simply didn't know how, what was really going on. So I started tweeting about it and I started putting out my opinions into the Twitter sphere, which is apparently collapsing now. I'm very sad about it. And I, I somehow built an audience. I still could not tell you why, but... I kept tweeting and I kept building a platform. I kept building platform. And in 2019, as we were the primaries were heating up, as we were getting ready for the presidential election, I really decided to use that platform to kind of solve the problem that led me to get it in the first place and to really make sure that young people would get involved. So we worked through the 2020 cycle and really blew up in 2021. And listen, I think. If there's one thing that the, these, this elections told us is that the, our theory of the case has been right, that 
when young people vote, democracy survives. Yeah, I, I have to say that there were circumstances, and of course, you and I were talking leading up to the election, so I, I was aware that things were not going to be as the pollsters were predicting. And I also was trying to do my own pushback on some of the kind of pundit class that was out there saying, Gen Z needs to vote, Gen Z needs to vote, because I knew some of what you were doing. But I have to say that some of the numbers uh, on university campuses in particular shocked me. I seem to remember there was one university campus where it was something like 75% of the student body voted. Um, and those numbers are phenomenal. So so tell us a little bit about how you went about organizing, because you guys have chapters all over the country right now, and I'm really curious about how you ramped up. Yeah, so two things. First, with regards to numbers, I think 75% of a total campus voting is great, but I do want to emphasize some other numbers that I think are even better. Uh, from the University of Pittsburgh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the University of Michigan, obviously official numbers have not come out, but the, our people on the ground were keeping count, and this is what we heard, is that the total number of votes cast was up 300% from 2018. Wow which is just absolutely insane to think about. But yeah, I mean, so basically we have chapters in 23 states. We have about 40 schools that have voters of tomorrow presence in them. And obviously, as we were getting closer to the election, we realized that we really needed more than just those 40 schools and that we we're going to need to organize across country. So we reached out to partners across the country in different schools, basically every single university in a competitive state or in a competitive district, received a phone call or an email from them, at, from us, to make sure that we were in communication throughout the election day and the days leading to it, and to make sure that we could kind of rely on them as we were working to get out the vote. So on election day, we had that presence in pretty much, I want to say thousands of schools where we were able to really keep track of the numbers as they were coming in. And if we saw we were falling behind on a campus or two, we were able to call the people that we had on the ground and just be like, hey, we need you to stop it up. We need you to really start getting the vote out. And that was that turned out to be critical in states like Michigan because we were able to very quickly see the lines that were forming. I mean, I think in Michigan, the last vote was cast at like 2 a.m. because the lines were so long. And we were able to then start communicating with other partners and get them pizza, get them coffee, get them food, get music playing. We're able in places like California, where it was raining in Orange County, we sent I, like a thousand ponchos to kids in line at UC Irvine. And all of that was really only things we could do because we were in, on the ground and we were seeing what was happening. And I think that's something that gets really missed. Obviously, digital is a huge component of all of this. But you can't just turn out the vote online. You have to be on the ground. You have to be talking to voters. And you really have to be there and provide whatever resources are necessary. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's an amazing effort. And I think the resourcefulness that your team showed in particular is really something that uh, that a lot of us who have been doing this for a lot longer than you have a lot to learn from. I mean, my sense about it is that you guys were really there, responsive on the fly and investing in real time as things developed. And so I think that's awesome. So let's talk a little bit about um, about just Gen Z generally, because, you know, there were some TikTok videos floating around on Tuesday night and Wednesday that were really like rambunctious and loud and 
um, and very much emphasizing what Gen Z values. And I think that uh, for me as like a longtime progressive, I find that sort of stuff really inspiring. But I'm interested in hearing what your takeaways are, because I know you've done a lot of, um, you know, sort of like data collection and anecdotal collection of what the base of your organization is really invested in, both now and for the future. Yeah. So, listen, I think there's a few things here. The first one is obviously, and I've been saying this for a while, Voters of Tomorrow itself is not a Democratic organization, nor is it a Republican organization. What we really are is a Gen C organization. So we we research what Gen Z believes in and what Gen Z supports because that's really what guides what we do, which candidates we endorse, how we uh, how we endorse those candidates, and how we work with those candidates, and what policy we advocate for. And through that research, we've really learned a lot, and that is that broadly, Gen Z, regardless of their political affiliation, has really fundamental core values that all of us share, and. I, I think there's many of them to really count in a single conversation. But uh, the bottom line is that Gen Z supports liberty, we support freedom, and we support democracy. And right now, as we have really seen everything that has transpired over the past few years and over the past few months, I think it is really clear that all of those are under attack. I mean, we are seeing book banning in some states. We are seeing, obviously, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We have seen things like Don't Say Gay and anti-LGBTQ plus bills. And we we saw an armed insurrection to try and overturn the results of a democratic election. So we, Gen Z as a whole, really stands up against those things, really wants to fight back against those things. And in large part, that is why I think you have been seeing this trend of increasing voter turnout in every election. We we saw this in 2018, we saw it in 2020, and we saw it again on Tuesday. Because Gen Z is fed up and we've said enough is enough. Is enough. We have seen everything that has transpired and we are tired of it and we want to fix it. And because we still live in a democratic society, whether that is what the future holds, especially with some of the candidates in the far right trying to overturn it. But because we still live in a democratic society, we're able to impact that to our votes. And we are able to go vote for liberty, for freedom, and for democracy. And I think as long as that is a threat, as there is a threat to those values, Gen Z will be at the ballot box ready to defend them. I love it. It's, uh, you know, it's, as I said, it's just so inspiring to me. And, and, you know, particularly somebody who also started out as a young activist, right? Like I was organizing my first protests at 15. So I remember what it's like to be, you know, to quote Hamilton, the musical, young, scrappy, and hungry when it comes to this kind of stuff. <laughs> I find it, uh, I find it all uh, really, really just heartening um, and, uh, and, and hopeful. Um, so, so thank you for all the work. How are you feeling about where we are right now. You know, I should say for our audience, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. So not all the results are in yet. We're waiting on some really key house races. Um, we're still waiting on a call in one Senate race and waiting, uh, of course, on the Georgia runoff, which is now going to be scheduled for the first week in December with early voting starting the last week in November. Um, how are you feeling about all of it? And, you know, what do you what are you guys up to with regard to Georgia? Because I know they're slanting there as well. Yeah, I feel really good. I mean, I, I I'm feeling incredibly good. We I we're gonna win. Uh, we're gonna win the Senate. I'm confident of it. Uh, 
both Mark Kelly, Catherine Cortez Masto, and Reverend Warnock are candidates who we endorsed, candidates who we work with, and I'm quite confident they're going to get across the finish line. Uh, in Nevada specifically, all the outstanding vote favors Catherine Cortez Masto, and she should be able to win that seat. And in Arizona, I think it is just a matter of waiting for decision desks to feel comfortable enough to call it. But I think the numbers are there and Mark Kelly clearly has this. At least from what I was seeing this morning, it looked like it was pretty well done and dusted for Mark Kelly. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I feel really confident in saying that he's already won it. I, I think Catherine Kurtz's mask, though, is a bit different in which I there's still a possibility that she couldn't, but I also feel really confident that math favors her. Uh, with regards to Georgia, we are starting to reach out to partners. We have already scheduled a few huddles to really understand what we're going to do. We're undusting most of the people that work at Versa Tomorrow, worked in Students for Biden, for Warnock, Ossoff in 2021. So we're fishing up the files and dusting them off to really figure out how we organize for a runoff and getting ready to uh, really fundraise and to be able to fund those efforts because we... Our, our investments in 2020 and 2022 ended up being a bit higher than we expected. So we're, we're, we're figuring out how we're paying for Georgia organizing, but we're kind of confident we're going to be able to do it. Well, I, sh- I should mention to everybody that we are linking the Voters of Tomorrow uh, website in our show notes. So if at the end of this episode, you were interested in kicking some money in the direction of all the youth organizing that's going to be happening in Georgia between now and early December. Um, feel free to pop on over there and kick a few bucks in the direction of Santiago and his compadres. It would be very, it would be very appreciated. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, so that's that's in Georgia. We're really still in very early in planning, and obviously it's going to move really quickly. Uh, but I think the kind of bottom line in this is obviously we have a lot of knowledge on the youth vote. We feel really confident we're able to turn out the youth vote, but at the same time, we don't want to step on step on the toes of local organizations that know the community better than we do. And we are obviously working very closely with our Georgia chapter that has been organizing in the state and has this experience because we don't want to just come in as a national organization and be like, and try to dictate what's happening. We want to work with people who have been organizing and who know how to organize. That's great. That's great. And I, you know, I'll say it's one of the things that I just remember from the prior Georgia runoff was that, you know, many of those on the ground organizations in Georgia, including organizations like Black Voters Matter, really have such a clear um, understanding of the lay of the land there in the context of what works and what doesn't from an organizing standpoint. I can even remember some of the organizers in Georgia telling us to like kind of stay home because they were worried that, you know, the sort of carpet bagging organizations and that runoff were going to maybe have an adverse impact rather than a positive one. And I think, uh, your approach of like following the on the ground people and the chapters that have been there doing the work makes complete sense to me. So I know it's all hands on deck though. We've really got to kind of like battle for this one once again. Uh, how are you feeling about the House? Uh, it is a very weird feeling. Mostly, we came, we came in with a five-seat majority. We had five seats. And we it was always going to be a really tough left because we, to, we had five seats to play with. And the average loss in a midterm is 27. So it was always going to be hard. But I think... We, we stopped the red wave, and whether we keep the House or lose it, it is very clear that it was not a red wave. If if Republicans do take the House, and I am still not sure that they will, I think there is still a very clear and possible path to a Democratic majority. 
But if Republicans do take the House, it's going to be a one or two seat majority. And first of all, that just makes me happy because I like nothing more than seeing Kevin McCarty's life be hell. Uh, but also because I think it puts us in a really good position to take it back in 2020. In 2024, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I my, my life has left the time-space continuum at this point. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm well aware of how little you've slept over the last few days. So I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful that you're even here. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was pointing out to people this morning on another broadcast that I do is that the other thing about, you know, however this shakes out with one vote, one of the things that I find so interesting about this current posture is that, you know, even if the Republicans end up with a one vote majority, that means very different things in the context of how caucusing around bills takes place on the Hill, of course, than if you end up with like a 27 seat majority. Right. Because really all the Democrats have to do in that instance is flip a couple of votes and it's a completely different ballgame. Yeah. I, I No, I also just want to point out Kevin McCarty's no Nancy Pelosi. I mean, I would trust Nancy Pelosi to run a one seat majority in the House. If there is one thing she has proved that she knows how to count votes and she knows how to whip them. Yep. Kevin McCarty's not that. Kevin McCarty, if you can give him anything, is that he has managed to bring together people who very clearly want different things into a single caucus and has managed to keep them from eating each other. <laughs> I like nothing more than see, seeing him suffer, but to a degree, even I feel bad about him because God, he's got it. If he ends up with a one-seat majority, he his life will be hell. Yeah. And I'm not convinced he's even going to get the votes he needs to be speaker because, you know, he's clearly been the insurrectionist caucus leader. And there's a lot of people, you know, in the Republican part of the House who now are really doubting and questioning whether or not that's a winning strategy after everything that happened on Tuesday. So we may end up with an alternative being put forward. And I know there's been some noise over the last couple of days about potentially even putting Liz Cheney up as speaker. But I think uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch how this develops in January because it's not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination, even if the Republicans pull it out by one vote. And and it would be one vote. And by the way, I, I just want to kind of highlight again, I still do think there's a path for Democrats to keep the majority. I, I yeah, me too. If there's one thing Democrats have proven this year is that they have had very good luck and that people in each district knew what they had to do to turn out the vote. So it's 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 going to take a bit of more good luck to pull it off. We need to still hold all of the seats where we're defending, and we need to flip at least three Republican uh, held seats. But votes are still being counted. There's still ballots that have to be shipped, especially in California. And I still think that there's a good chance Democrats keep the majority. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I'm I'm keeping a very close eye, as you know, on Katie Porter's race because she's been my rep. And uh, one of the things that I'm hearing, at least right now, is that the mail-in ballots that are being counted, which have a full week to arrive, um, are are tilting very heavily in favor of Democrats generally. So I think we're in better shape than maybe the numbers are showing us right now. Here, you know, four days after election day. So what's coming next for you guys? I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about Georgia, and you know, maybe it's a little early to talk about this. I know everybody probably needs about two weeks of sleep, but I'm curious <laughs> as to what your plans are. You know, kind of heading into the next cycles, because obviously, we are we do have some state and locals coming up between now and 2024. But you know, we're kind of a hair's breadth. I hate to put it in these terms because I know you're so tired, but we're kind of a hair's <laughs> breadth away from the next election cycle ramping up. So, what what's next for VOT? Yeah, listen, I think there's a few things. The first one is obviously uh, 
don't, we're expecting Donald Trump to announce his presidential campaign within the next few days. And that trusts us entirely into the 2024 poll game. I mean, there's a possibility we'll be in 2024 before we know who controls either the House or the Senate. So obviously, we we have been preparing for a few months for the possibility that any of these things could happen. If there is one thing that our strategy team is good at, I said, making materials they will never use. We had We had plans for every possible scenario, and we will only use one of them. So we have been preparing for a lot of this, and we we know what we're going to do. Gen Z has proved before that we will back pro-democracy candidates, and in 2024, we'll prove that again. I, I also, on a personal note, I'm very much looking forward to Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump destroying each other in the debate stage. It's already um, happening online, apparently, it's, so it's, we, it's we're beautiful. not going to have long to wait for that, I don't think. It's beautiful. Uh, on an organizational level, though, I... It's we're in a bit of a transition stage, mostly because we last year. So for those of you who don't know, we are really youth led. I mean, uh, our our oldest member is 25. Our youngest member is 13. So we are absolutely youth led. And obviously that makes it a bit difficult sometimes because you have kids in school. You have people who have things in college. But right now, especially we're in a bit of a transition point. Last year, a bunch of our older high schoolers are now college freshmen and they went into college. So that was big because now they both have more time, but also because you, we have them spread out across the country. Now we're in the different end of that stick because a lot of our older members, me included, are graduating college. So we're in a bit of the transition period. We need to figure out exactly how it looks like. I think for the first time, probably since VOT started in 2019, we're finally going to go full, do this full time as a, like an actual job, which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, we're starting to look as to how we shape the organization in a way that makes sense for 24, especially seeing how we need to emphasize that on the ground component and how we really need to make sure that the entire organization serves not as an up to down system that tells people what they need to do but really as a support net for all those hopefully soon hundreds of chapters that can tell us what they need and just have us provided to them. And finally, I mean, we we really are looking forward to continuing to work with the administration, continuing to work hopefully uh, with uh, our allies in Congress to push legislation that is important to Generation C. If anything, I think, this election really showed that there is no path forward to winning without young voters. And because of that, I think we are in a very good position to really push forward legislation and items that Gen Z cares about, because politicians know that if they want our support, they're going to need to deliver. So I've been over the past few days already hard at work texting people at the White House, texting people in Congress, texting people in Senate to really figure out what the best options are to make sure that Gen Z not only sees that they their vote mattered with the results and final numbers in Congress, but they also see that their voices were heard with what's implemented after. And I, I do want to give a big shout out to the Youth and Gov proposal, which we have been one of the key champions of and is really working to make sure that Gen Z is more represented in the executive brands. It creates a, an office of young Americans that would 
work exclusively to elevate young people and make their voices heard. It also creates a Young Americans Advisory Council, which if anyone here has followed me on Twitter, you've known I've been pushing for for almost two years at this point, which would bring in young voter, young people really into the White House and really make it a sounding board for the administration to have a council of young people who understands the dynamics of high schools and colleges and just being young and really can tell people what all of these things feel like. I mean, I think one of the big debates that was happening with student loan relief, for example, was that some of the president's advisors who had left college decades ago yeah, felt that it was not a good idea. And there was really no counterweight to that because all the people that were in college right now did not have that seat. So this is kind of the issues that this advisory council would try to solve. And we are, we're very excited. We are uh, very optimistic that especially after these results, we'll be able to get it across the line. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really excited about it too, frankly. And I don't think anybody can kind of dispute. I was always for like full loan forgiveness and I still am. I But I don't think anybody can dispute after the response to just waiving 10 grand of student debt, which hopefully is going to survive all of these court challenges, that it 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 paid for itself more than anybody could have imagined in terms of the energy that it put behind the youth vote, which was already, you know, quite high, as right. you and I both know, but that it really made a massive difference in the final weeks to have people seeing how voting and who you vote for could really make an impact on your future. So my hope is honestly that we get more student loan relief. Let's hope so. Yeah, coming out of what's next. And of course, you know, we all know- Give me those Biden bucks. We're here for it. Exactly, exactly. And of course, we all know that, uh, you know, Gen Z swings in in enormous numbers in the direction of abortion rights and civil rights and rights for LGBTQ plus Americans and in terms of marijuana legalization and decriminalization and and, uh, decarceration and all of that. So there's a lot of work to be done there from a policy standpoint. And I'm, I'm personally really excited to to have you and your organization, you know, working on behalf of all of these critical issues and on behalf of all of us, because it's not just Gen Z that benefits from all of this. Um, so, you know, what's the long-term picture here, Santiago? You know, we've talked a little bit about getting ready for the next cycle. Um, you know, obviously we have our first Gen Z representative elected in Florida in the form of Maxwell Frost. Um, what do you, what's the long-term impact that you're hoping to have in terms of the work that you're doing? Well, if you ask QAnon, uh, the real long-term impact is I'm installing communism for my secret <laughs> dad, Hugo Chavez. Uh, but back in the real world, the real impact is really just to give young people a voice. And I think, I mean, obviously, Maxwell uh, being in Congress is a huge deal. We and we were the first national organization to endorse him over the past few months working with him. I, I, I think I'll have a friend at this point, and I'm very excited to have such an ally in Congress because, and I, I want to be clear just for the record, there was another Gen Zer running who did not win, who was not a representative of Generation C because she was anti-abortion rights, anti-LGBTQ plus rights, and supported the election denying conspiracy theory that led to the insurrection. So her, we don't talk about. But we don't claim her. But yeah. Maxwell, though, it has 
been such a good ally and it has been such a good voice on all of these issues. He's been a leading organizer. He worked with March for Our Lives. He worked for the ACLU. He His background is one of a hardworking person who really worked his ass off to get to where he is now. And I don't think that goes anywhere but to prove that he is the voices, he's one of the voices that we need in power. I I also do think it's funny. I mean, we he's been elected for what, four days now, and you already have people who are not in politics tweeting about how the first Gen Z member of Congress is a Swifty, how he listens to Harry Styles. They've been going through his Twitter to find any hot take on music or culture. And that is important because for so long, young people have simply not felt that Congress culturally represented them. I mean, there's a running joke inside the Voters Tomorrow team about asking members of Congress for their favorite Taylor Swift song, and half of them (laughs) have never heard of her. So having someone who has these cultural experiences and shares them with us is so important. And it makes people who might have not been involved in politics beforehand see themselves in politics, see how they can make a difference and really be part of it. Well, I'll tell you, for the record, my favorite Taylor Swift song right now is Vigilante Shit off the new Midnight Tell. There you go. Okay. (laughs) She does have a fan base in the kind of like Gen X version of things as well. Trust me. But I I think that's right. I mean, you know, you gotta you gotta see yourself in positions of power in order to envision and understand why it is that uh, voting matters and participating in democracy matters. If people think that my t- love for Taylor Swift is just a bit, they're very <laughs> wrong. I am committed to it. But throughout, we spent probably over 30 hours sitting in a room, working at a hotel in Washington, D.C. All of us, everyone, no sleep. Through those entire 32 hours, the only artist that came out of my computer was Taylor Swift. We <laughs> built a playlist called Fuck Mitch. Starts with vigilante shit goes after with karma ends with only the young it's that's perfect that's that's absolutely perfect <laughs> i love it all right i have to ask you the questions that we ask are uh are all of our guests the last three questions the first one is what keeps you going okay uh listen i think part of why i am able to do this really because it is exhausting and draining and like like you said i ha- i i went for almost five days without sleep the only reason why I feel I, I can continue to really do this is because of all the amazing young people that I keep encountering through this. I mean, true voters of tomorrow, I have seen really, I think, not just the smartest, but the like most committed, most dedicated, most passionate young people. And I don't, I'm not even just talking about people who are like in high school. I mean, at the VOT summit in Philly, we had an 11-year-old be there. And was he traveled from Texas, I believe, to Philadelphia to go to a political summit being 11 years old, which is so mind-blowing. But you really see that these people are ready to show up and to fight and to prove that the Gen Z will not tolerate the far right. And I think what keeps me going is thinking that if all of these kids really that if all of these children can do it, it is simply unforgivable if if I can't. And it is simply unforgivable if I 
don't show up to help them fight for what they're doing. So I I, I think that's it. I mean, you see all of these kids fighting for their future and it, it, it wakes you up and makes you want to join them. Yep. I, I completely, I mean, it's that your experience with the 11 year old is my experience with you. So I get it. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Question number two, what in your view are the most pressing concerns about the state of America in the world right now? Uh, freedom, liberty, and democracy. And I know I'm repeating those from the three things that Gen Z cares about, but we're seeing all of those under attack. I mean, I'm actually kind of shocked that we have not had any candidate in the past few days claim that their election was stolen. But we've already seen it with their grassroots activists saying that Democrats are stealing the election or that this was rigged or whatever. I think there's still a really big threat to democracy. And that we're going to have to keep fighting back because if not, we're going to lose it for good. Uh, liberty, yeah. yeah, liberty and freedom, I think, go hand in hand. And I think they they come back to we lost Roe. We don't know if we're going to have the votes to get it back. And I think that's something as, as happy as everyone is because this wasn't a red wave. I do think it's it's worth thinking that we we might have not gotten the votes that we needed for it. And obviously we're going to keep trying and we're going to try and do it with 51. We're going to try and do it with a possibly one seat majority in the House. I'm, I'm sure President Biden is going to be com- is committed to continuing to defend it from the ex- whatever through whatever executive actions he can. But we lost Roe, and that is still something that's very that's a very great uh, threat to not just women, but really any anyone who has in it uterus or who can get pregnant in this country. And finally, I mean, I think the loss of Roe really opened the door to the loss of other rights, and I. Clarence Thomas basically said that that's what their plan. We and it's not it's not a really question of what if how or why, but it's really a question of one because we've already seen, like I said, in Florida and in Virginia and in Texas book bans, and we've seen things like don't say gay. We know that Kevin McCarty, if he does get a majority, is going to try and get a national don't say gay law passed, and all of these things are really threats to Gen Z's, not just bodily autonomy, but freedom to decide who they love, freedom to decide what they read, freedom to decide whether they know real history or not. It's a threat to their liberty and a threat to their freedom. And I think until we beat all of these crazy, back out fascists, we, we will be in huge threats. Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's a it's the battle of our lifetimes, honestly. And you know, we've been in it for a long time now, and it's not ending anytime soon. I I, I have said to people, um, and particularly people in my generation, and you know, people who identify as women who maybe were not really all that invested in politics before Trump got elected, that um, that this is a lifelong path, and I'm not expecting that any of us are at any point ever again going to be able to assume that anything is safe. So I think we're all kind of in the same boat together. Um, Last question. What can we all do to support your work and the work that needs to be done to change these critical precipice points that you just decided that are taking place right now in America? It is very simple. Go to votersoftomorrow.org and you have two huge options. On the top 
right left corner, there's a huge button that says donate. Anything that you can ship in will be greatly appreciated. Like I said, we we went a bit over budget with our general election efforts. So building up back the war chest, figuring out how we're able to organize in Georgia, even a dollar is helpful. Even 30 cents really is helpful. Anything you can ship in, you it will mean a lot to young voters in Georgia. The other option is just a bit to the left of that big button. It says volunteer. And if you click that, you can go to see all the organizing events across the country that we're hosting. Right now, because the election just ended, it's a bit empty. But as we've decided what exactly is happening in Georgia, that page will populate with hundreds of phone banks, text banks of organizing and canvassing shifts, not just with us, but with many of our partners. And I think that anyone who can sign up to that should, because at the end of the day, we've seen how these runoffs turn out. It comes down to a few thousand votes, sometimes maybe in a, even a few hundreds, and every vote that we get on matters. And people can think that texting or calling people doesn't make a difference, but I think this election proved it wrong. I, I think this election, especially with young people, really showed that all of these efforts do have, make a difference and do have tangible results. So please go to votersoftomorrow.org and sign up. Uh, thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure. I'm sure we're going to have you back at some other point. And I uh, can't wait to see you in person soon. We both know when and give you a big hug for all the work that you've done. <laughs> um, and uh, and I have to thank Santiago Meyer once again, one of the founders of Voters of Tomorrow, for being here and sharing all of his wisdom about Gen Z with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We will be right back. So there you have it. I have to say, I find Santiago and all of his work so inspirational. And as I said repeatedly, you know, one of my big takeaways from this election cycle and every election cycle really now is what the rest of us have to learn from the organizers who are really getting it done. And Santiago and his organization are so invested and so committed to the future of our democracy and their kids, right? Uh, Santiago did all of this while simultaneously being a college student, and he's just finishing up his degree now. And I look at that and I look at that commitment to the future of this country and to the future of the planet, really. And what it makes me consider is how much more the rest of us could be doing. So I encourage you as a takeaway from this week's interview to really consider that, to look at the investment and the energy and the care and the commitment of these young folks who are fighting so hard for their future, come what may, and ask yourself, how can we allow ourselves to be led by that? Because the future is so bright when it is in the hands of people like Santiago who care so much. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for listening to Living Through It with ECM, a podcast for interesting times. If you want to know more about me, Elizabeth Cronice McLaughlin, head on over to GaiaLeadershipProject.com, where you can check out all our in-person and virtual leadership programs for folks who want to create change at work, at home, and in the world. You can also read my essays on politics, law, and change at NewsletterWithECM.Substack.com. And last, but definitely not least, you can listen to all our episodes of Living Through It ad-free over on Patreon. 
at patreon.com slash living through it. That's patreon.com slash living through it. Thanks for listening and see you next week.